passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. You see, this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is a very sensitive subject. It talks about some very delicate issues, and I want to be sensitive to the children who are in the audience, but also at the same time, I don't want to make light or take away the the impact of the passage that we are studying. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis 34, um, in euphemism terms, is uh, is called the defiling of Dinah. It is a a time of uh, shock and awe and horror for the people of Israel as Jacob's daughter Dinah is taken captive and is raped by the son of Hamor, the ruler of Shechem. And as I think about this passage, I think about the similarities that we see in our culture today. In fact, uh, many of us are aware of what's been happening over the past month or so with this whole Stanford swimmer Brock Turner and all of the things that are happening with that trial and a great deal of outrage that's been expressed over the sentencing that he has received for what he uh, committed. And I think that the, the outrage that we see as a part of our culture really reveals to us something about each and every one of us. Even as our culture is is moving away from our Christian foundation, even as we're leaving behind our Christian principles, there is still an innate desire and thirst and need for justice. Deep down within each and every single one of us, we want justice. Our society wants justice. And this case that's been all over the news reveals this tension. What exactly does justice look like? How can we actually know when we've reached justice? What's going to stop us from going too far? For that matter, what's going to stop us from going too short when we try to bring justice to a broken world? The opinions of social media seem to show this tension. It's appalling to see what people have said in response to this sentencing, where justice in the eyes of many people means that while in jail, this young man will be murdered and raped, and it'll serve him right. Surely this is too far, is it not? And then on the other hand, we have this man's father, who says he shouldn't be punished so much for a 20-minute mistake. Surely this is too lenient. Not going far enough, is it not? And so in our search for justice, we find ourselves so often going overboard or not going far enough, wanting revenge or passing over justice. How do we know what justice is? What is the measuring stick for justice? How do we know or how can we be sure that justice has been satisfied? Our culture may not like to admit it, but the question of justice is ultimately a question of sin. 
It's ultimately a question of how do we respond to sin? How do we address sin? When we sin or when sin is done to us, how do we respond in a just and right way? And that's what this morning's text is all about. If you're wondering what justice looks like, honestly, Genesis 34 is not for you. It is the exact opposite of justice. And by showing us the exact opposite of justice, in a way, it shows us exactly what justice is. It is in the failures of Jacob, it's in the failures of Jacob's sons that we see the opposites of God's justice. We see the two extremes that our culture so often runs to. Last week, Pastor Stephen led us through Genesis chapter 33. Genesis 33 is a very powerful story of Jacob's reconciliation with his brother Esau. After being outside of the promised land for 20 plus years, he returns to the land. And after his brother threatened to murder him, he approaches his brother and they are reconciled to one another. And it's this beautiful picture of what our own reconciliation in Christ is looks like. And this morning we're going to pick up in Genesis 33. Look at the very end of Genesis 33 because in the midst of this gracious reconciliation that we saw last week, there are also the roots to our problem of Genesis chapter 34. In fact, Genesis 33 is the key to understanding Genesis 34. This is a difficult story. God is notably absent throughout this story. And so what we're going to see is in God's absence, we're actually going to see how God plans to deal with sin. How God plans to bring justice. And Genesis 34 makes it abundantly clear. God's plan is infinitely better than anything that you could think of. Anything that I could think of. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 33. We're going to be starting in verse 15. Last week I mentioned that we talked briefly about reconciliation. Jacob is on his way back to the promised land, back to modern day Israel. And on his way, he encounters Esau. He goes out of his way to first reconcile himself to his brother. And his brother Esau invites him to a land called Seir. This is a land that's far south of the promised land. It's well outside of the promised land. And Jacob is a man who has been promised by God the land of promise, the land of Canaan. He knows that he can't go there. Even though his brother invites him with open arms to this land where he dwells, he knows that he cannot go with him. And so Jacob should have just said so. Jacob should have said to Esau, you know what, thank you so much for offering me a place to stay. But I am committed to my God, and my God has told me to return to the promised land. But he doesn't show courage. Instead, he slips back into his old deceitful ways, and he lies to his brother. Pick up in verse 15. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he, being Jacob, said... What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock 
Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tents. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Jacob has decided not to go to Seir with his brother. But interestingly, he also decides not to go to the promised land like God has called him to do. Instead, what he does is he actually backtracks. He goes back, and this is significant because even though it's just a geographical backtracking, it's also a spiritual backtracking. He goes back over the Jabbok River, and he settles in a place called Sukkot. If you look at a map, this is just within a stone's throw of the promised land. He's lived outside of God's promise for 20 plus years. And now he's within striking distance of it. And he instead decides to dwell outside of the land of promise. Why is that? Why is Jacob doing this? Well, the text doesn't really tell us. Most likely, Jacob is simply just attracted to the wide open plains of the Transjordan. A land where he could grow his herd of livestock, where he could continue to become wealthy and prosperous. And right here, when he settles in Sukkoth, this should be a a red flag for us. After all, this is a man who just lied to his brother after repenting of lying to his brother. And now he settles in a land where God has told him not to settle. He now dwells outside of the promised land. He's unwilling to leave behind the source of his prosperity. He's unwilling to trust God for continued blessing. And so he lives there for a time. But eventually, as we see in this text, he eventually decides it is time to return to the promised land. If you look at verse 18, hidden in this verse is a very powerful moment. For over two decades, Jacob has lived outside of the land of promise. And in verse 18, he is finally returning. He is crossing over the Jordan River. This is a significant moment for Jacob. It's a significant moment for the future nation of Israel. Because in this moment, Jacob is declaring that he trusts God. He trusts in God's promises. We see this glimmer of faith from Jacob. And then instantly, the moment he is across the river, he reverts back to his old ways. He goes back to his old ways of not focusing first and foremost on God. If you look at Genesis chapter 24 and and Genesis chapter uh, 31 and, and all of these places where God has spoken to Jacob, he tells Jacob to return to Bethel. He says, return to this city named Bethel. And here Jacob, 20 miles from Bethel, decides to settle in Shechem. Just a day's journey from where God has promised him to go, but he decides that he has done enough. He's followed God good enough. After all, Shechem was on a major trade route. It was a place where he could continue to grow wealthy, to grow prosperous. And so he compromised on what God had told him to do. 
How often are we like Jacob? How often are we on a mission to follow God? That God has called us to follow him. And then we stop short. We stop short of full obedience. How often do we set out to follow God and then all of a sudden after some time we just say, you know what, I've done enough. I've gone far enough. I'm good. And I'm not going to go to Bethel. Friends, the reality is I think Jacob is a very good picture of us more often than we would like to admit If you notice what Jacob does at the end of chapter 33, in verse 30, he builds an altar here. So you might be saying, well, well, Jordan, if Jacob is building an altar, how, how is he being partially disobedient here? As we see what Jacob does in the, in the rest of Genesis 34, and as we see Jacob here at the end of 33, we can see confidently That what Jacob is doing when he builds this altar is he's just trying to fool himself. He's trying to hide all of his actions in the veneer of religiosity. He's trying to convince himself that he's okay in God's sight. After all, God told him to go here, but he's going to go here. And at least he's going to build God an altar. God said to do this, and he says, I'm going to instead do this. But at least I'll give God credit for it. And so as he's living in Shechem, he builds an altar and he says, I'm going to call this altar God, the God of Israel. He's making a declaration that he doesn't care what God has said. He's going to worship God on his own terms. Indeed, Jacob is playing the part well. He's deceiving himself. He's deceiving others that he's doing exactly what God has wanted him to do. But God does not change. God does not sway. God wants obedience. And for Jacob, obedience meant to return to Bethel. Not to stop 20 miles short in Shechem. You see, it's this fake religiosity. It's this partial obedience here that leads to what happens in Genesis, 20, or Genesis 34. If Jacob would have been fully obedient, if Jacob would have gone another 20 miles to Bethel, his daughter would have been safe. Jacob would have never experienced the tension of having to live near pagan people. He would have been in the exact center of God's will. And all of Genesis chapter 34 could have been avoided. Friends, let that serve as a warning. Let that serve as a warning to each and every one of us. That partial obedience, fooling ourselves, those are the seeds of devastation. It's in those moments we can see the fruit of destruction coming. See, it doesn't take us a a lot of effort to fool others with fake religiosity. In fact, each and every one of us could probably think of times in our lives or in the lives of others where someone has given a veneer of religiosity to cover up their disobedience. And Genesis 33 
is a warning of the danger that comes when we stray from God's plan. You see, if Genesis 33 is the foundation, then Genesis 34 is the fruit that comes when disaster strikes. Pick up in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the woman of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this girl for my wife. We don't know how long Jacob has lived near Shechem, but at some point Dinah heads out. And the language here, the the phrases that are used here, are used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to, to less than upright actions. I think a lot of times we can portray Dinah here as this innocent person, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. Dinah going out to see the women of the land, going out to to mix and become friends with people who are not like her, is setting herself up for an issue, setting herself up for a problem. As she goes out to see the women of the land, she is instead seen by a man of the land. And this man... Shechem comes and seizes her, and he lays with her. And this virgin daughter of Jacob is now defiled and now must live the rest of her days as a marked woman. But thankfully, Shechem, he wants to make things right. After all of this has happened, he's overpowered her with physical force. Now he starts trying to woo her with his words. And he says, Father, get me this woman for my bride. And his father, Hamor, agrees. After all, this has brought disgrace upon him and his family as well. And he wants to appease this wealthy man named Jacob. And so he agrees to arrange a marriage for Shechem and Dinah. Pick up in verse 7, or 5, excuse me. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. Notice in verse 5, how does Jacob respond to the rape of his daughter? Silence. Silence. This man does nothing. We saw the beginning of his faith deteriorating in Genesis 33. Well, I think that we can safely say that is in full display here. Gone is the man who wrestled with God in Genesis 32 for God's blessing. Gone is the man who humbles himself before his brother in repentance to restore his relationship in Genesis 33. Gone is the man who pleaded with God to save his family from the wrath of his brother in Genesis 32. And in his place is a man who has such a need for comfort, such a need to to dwell in, in rich Uh, living, that he is unwilling to speak out. He's unwilling to to address the rape of his daughter. It's disgusting. 
at least the reaction of his sons is a little more appropriate. At least at first. They are full of anger and indignance over what has happened to their sister and to their half-sister. They are rightfully furious and they want justice. They want this problem to be taken care of. And so when they go to meet Hamor and their father who are in the process of negotiating, they have this thirst for justice that influences every single thing that they say and do. Pick up in verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Hamar starts the negotiating, knowing that what his son has done is wrong. It's not just wrong in Israel. It was wrong in, in throughout the entire world. Ancient common law saw rape as evil. It, it was something that, that left his family with a black eye, and Hamor was willing to do whatever he could in order to fix this problem. And so he approaches Jacob, and he approaches Jacob's son, and he says, let's just fix this by having the two of them get married. And this is a logical solution. Maybe not in our context today, but in ancient times, this was a logical solution in that culture. But Hamor doesn't just stop there. And in order to smooth things over, he appeals to the mutual benefit that will come for both Jacob and the people of Shechem. He knows that Jacob is an outsider. He knows that it will be difficult for Jacob to acquire wealth and land. And so he offers Jacob more than just Dinah's hand. Excuse me. uh, he, He asks for more than just Dinah's hand. What he wants is to enter Mary. What he wants is for Jacob to lose his identity and become a Shechemite. What he wants is to appeal to Jacob's desire for wealth and prosperity and to get him to compromise. If these two groups of people intermarry, it will be good for all, he claims. He says Jacob's family will grow more prosperous. And of course, Shechem will as well. Jacob will receive more land. Jacob will receive more livestock. Jacob and his family could be rich beyond their wildest dreams if they just agree to Hamor's proposal. Do you see what what is at stake here? This is a test for Jacob. And honestly, it is probably the biggest test that Jacob has ever had to face especially considering his spiritual state right now. God has promised Jacob land. God has promised Jacob offspring. God has promised Jacob wealth. And now he has an opportunity to acquire each of those things. If they intermarry, he will receive land. If they intermarry, he will receive offspring and he will become even more wealthy. There's only one problem. If Jacob takes this offer, then he'll be turning his back on the other part of God's promise. That God would be with Jacob. What Jacob is having to do right now 
is to trust God or to immediately get what he wants. Again, I think that sometimes that's the case that we find ourselves in. We can oftentimes find ourselves in situations where we have to either trust God or do exactly what seems right, seems easiest, and seems best in the immediate context. Are we going to choose to trust God and follow Him or satisfy our cravings? Are we going to choose to trust God in the midst of our relationships? Or are we going to settle for someone else who isn't what God would have for us? In our finances, are we willing to trust God or sacrifice our integrity and morality in order to get ahead? Even in watching our language and swearing, are we going to sacrifice trusting God in order to fit in? We all face the crisis that Jacob is facing right now. And Shechem sweetens the pot by saying, I'll give you an even extravagant bride price as well. Here is Jacob's decision. Follow God or throw his lot in with the world. And based off of Jacob's actions so far, we would think that the decision has already been made. Let's pick up in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on, one, on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Thankfully, Jacob's brothers, uh, sons, excuse me, step in and respond correctly in, in one sense. They, they say the right words. They know that they are called to be set apart. And they know that they can't compromise that calling just at the first sign of a shortcut to God's promises. But unfortunately, as, as good as what they say initially is, the reasons for what they say are not fidelity to God, not a commitment of faithfulness to God's calling for them, but it is instead for revenge. This word that's used here at the very beginning of what we just read in verse 13, deceitfully. It's used to refer to Jacob throughout Jacob's life. Like father, like son. And so they tell the men of Shechem of this cultural tradition of circumcision that they have. And I call it a cultural tradition here because they mention no, uh, no, nothing about God. They mention nothing about God's covenant, his special relationship with them. And in doing so, by mentioning circumcision, they take Jacob's silence from earlier and they double down on it. It's even more disgusting by taking a religious symbol of the relationship that they have with God and they are turning their backs on it. And they look to God's promise. God's promise that they will be a set-apart nation. But they forget God's promise that they would be a blessing to the nations. Instead, they're about to become a scourge to the nations. 
See, they, they didn't understand the purpose of circumcision. They didn't understand that this invitation to be a part of the covenant community, to be a part of the people of God, meant circumcision and a heart change. And a change of what you worship, forsaking your gods and following the one true God. That's not what Jacob and his sons have in mind. They desecrate the sign of their relationship with God. In Genesis 33, we saw that their father practiced false religion. And the reason he practiced that false religion was in order to hide a cold heart. But here in Genesis 34, we see that Jacob's sons practice dead religion. And the reason why they practice it is to hide their genocidal plans. And so they propose this. They really are their father's children. How does Hamor respond? How does Shechem respond? Pick up in verse 18. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Jacob's plan, excuse me, his son's plan for deceit worked. Hamor and Shechem and the entire city of Shechem agreed to the terms. And the reason why they agreed to these terms is because Shechem and Hamor appealed to greed just like they did with Jacob. And all of these men are circumcised. And if only the story ended there. But of course, it does not. Pick up in verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they plundered and captured. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, uh, Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The people of Shechem performed the circumcision, and the sons waited until the greatest pain was felt, and they were most off guard, and then they struck. But notice it's just Simeon, and it's just Levi, two of Dinah's older brothers. 
These bloodthirsty brothers snuck into the city and slaughtered every single male who was incapacitated. First, the the sons of Jacob, they divorce circumcision from its meaning. And now they take circumcision and use it as a plot for revenge. And as their swords are soaked with the blood of Shechem, they call the rest of their brothers into the city and the plundering begins. And the growth of wealth begins. Each of these brothers enjoys the spoils of this deception. Notice what this text says. Notice what this text tells us. It says all of the wealth, all of the children, all of the wives, all of these were captured and plundered by Jacob's family. Now based off of ancient practices of plundering, based off of the morality that we have seen from Jacob's sons, it is not at all unlikely that this plundering included the rape of these wives who had just witnessed their husbands slaughtered. For the defiling of one woman comes the murder of an entire town and the retributive rape of their wives. So much for retributive justice. So much for an eye for an eye. So much for being a blessing to the nations. In just a few short days, this family became wealthy and powerful, yes. But at the same time, they showed no distinction in their morality than the people of Shechem. If anything, they were far worse than the people of Shechem, using deception, using murder, using theft and rape to accomplish what they wanted. And these are our spiritual ancestors. These are the people of Israel. Notice how Jacob responds. It leaves much to be desired. He doesn't express anger over genocide. He doesn't express anger over this misuse of circumcision. He doesn't express anger over the defiling of the city or the pillaging or anything like that. Jacob has no sense of objective guilt and a desire for justice. Jacob is only concerned with his own skin. The only reason why Jacob is torn up about this is because now his family is marked for destruction by everyone else that lives near them. And that is how the text ends. It ends as a bit of a cliffhanger. It ends without resolution. It ends without answers. If you read this text like me, it leaves me feeling unclean. Leaves me feeling dirty, feeling uncomfortable, not really sure what to make of all of this. And in doing so, it powerfully communicates truth to us today. I think this text tells us five truths in the midst of the ugliness that we see here. First, this text makes clear to us that grace is completely undeserved. Grace is completely undeserved. Is there any group less deserving of God's blessing? less deserving of God's favor than Jacob and his family. Jacob ignores God and his daughter is defiled, and in return, his sons slaughter an entire city. This passage flies straight in the face of our traditional thinking that God helps those who help themselves. If you think that you deserve grace, even just a a little Genesis 34 is a reminder of how unworthy each and every one of us is. 
We may not sink to the depths of Jacob and his sons, but we are just as unworthy. Grace is just as undeserved for us. In the face of our idolatry, in the face of our disobedience, in the face of our impurity, our rejection, our unfaithfulness, grace remains constant. Grace is completely undeserved. Second thing this text tells us is this. Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. God made it clear that Jacob was to go to Bethel. And Jacob went 95% of the way there and stopped. He was partially obedient, yes. But honestly, partial obedience is full disobedience. If you have children and you ask them to take out the trash, bring the trash out to the curb, and they gather the trash from all of the different trash cans in the house, they put it in the trash receptacle, but they don't take it to the curb, were they obedient? No. It doesn't matter if we are 95% obedient. It doesn't matter if we are 99% obedient to God. It is 100% disobedient. So ask yourself, are you being obedient? Are you being partially obedient? Because partial obedience is disobedience. Next thing this text tells us, religious acts can hide a cold heart. Remember Jacob's actions in Genesis 33. And look at them as a warning. Jacob's actions show how our religious actions can fool ourselves, can fool others, and hide the rottenness within our own hearts. For a time at least. Everything will eventually come to light. Truth will always come out. And so ask yourself, are you fooling yourself? Your church attendance, your prayer, your Bible reading, are all those like Jacob when he is near Shechem used to fool yourself and to fool others? Religious acts can hide a cold heart. Fourth thing is this, children often follow in their parents' footsteps. Children often follow in their parents' footsteps. Where did Jacob's son's despicable actions come from? From their father, by watching their dad. Jacob was a deceiver, and so they took that deception to the next level. Jacob used religion as a ruse, and so his sons took that to the next level. If you have children in your home, ask yourself, what are your children learning from you? What are they learning from you with your words and your actions? Are they learning that Christianity is just something that you do rather than a vital relationship? Friends, they observe from birth all the way until they leave the house. And during that time, you are discipling them. Are you discipling them to follow the world or to follow Jesus? Children often follow in their parents' footsteps. And finally, this text makes one thing clear to us. The most important thing is this. We cannot deal with sin on our own. We cannot deal with sin on our own. How did Jacob attempt to deal with his sin? He ignored it. How did his sons attempt to uh, deal with sin? They didn't seek justice, but instead sought vengeance. We cannot deal with sin on our own. See, the truth is, we live in a culture, as we mentioned earlier, that looks at justice just like Jacob and just like Jacob's sons. 
At the same time that it tries to pass over sin in one sense, ignoring justice in other senses, it overreacts and does not pursue justice, but instead pursues vengeance. Friends, that's why this text intentionally leaves a bad taste in our mouth. It's to remind us of the ugliness of sin. It's to remind us of the ugliness of our sin. Especially when it is unaddressed. So ask, how are you dealing with your sin? How are you addressing your sin? The only true way to see justice is the cross. It is at the cross where justice is brought for sinners like Shechem. For sinners like Jacob. And even for sinners like Jacob's sons. You see, this text is teaching us one thing, one truth that is extremely clear. It's this, sin without sacrifice remains unsatisfied. Sin without sacrifice remains unsatisfied. It is only at the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that we see sin and justice meet. Ask, are you putting your trust in him? Are you repenting? Are you placing your trust in him? Sin without sacrifice is unsatisfied. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the message of Genesis 34. Even as it is a hard text to read, we are thankful that it is in Scripture. We are thankful that it is a passage that teaches us more about you, even though you are absent. And it also teaches us about the wickedness of our own hearts. And so, Father, as we uh, leave from this passage, we ask that you would convict us, that you would speak to us, reveal to us the places where the, the bad taste of sin in Genesis 34 should be present in our own lives and our own faults and failures. Be gracious to us, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.